Our scripture passage for this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 8, as we read verses 18 to 22. Hear now the word of God. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me, and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray and ask our God to bless his word. Lord Jesus, would you send your spirit so that when your word speaks, we would receive and not reject it. Shape us into your image by our encounter with you and what you say this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I had just become a Christian at the age of 17. Hard to believe that was 25 years ago. And my best friend at the time, whose name was Matt, told me something that was really important to my life. He said, you have to read Dietrich Bonhoeffer's The Cost of Discipleship. And I remember going to a local bookstore and finding a copy. Now listen, this was the days before Amazon. This was a big deal. If someone recommended you a book back then, you didn't know if you were going to find it. You might spend years looking and hoping you could someday just come across it in the wild. It was like searching for a needle in a haystack, and they had a copy of The Cost of Discipleship. And so I bought that. I remember going home, and I remember reading the first 100 pages and being blown away. Um, But the thing that so struck me about the book was how starkly Bonhoeffer spoke Because he basically said, and actually in later years, he regretted how sternly he spoke. He thought he was being legalistic by, in the way that he wrote this book. And I never thought that, but he did. Uh, But Bonhoeffer was very straightforward. He was very stern. He said, look, there's no halfway, no such thing as a halfway Christian. You either take the gospel seriously, you take the call to follow Jesus seriously, or you don't follow him at all. And he may have been afraid that that was legalism, but I needed someone to tell me that. I needed a, a, a grown-up in the faith to look me in the eye and say, take this deadly seriously. It was what I needed at the time. And then, of course, Bonhoeffer gave that famous line, when Jesus bids us come, he bids us come and die. And that struck me very deeply because in some ways I felt like you know, when you're young, you're just always judging everybody older than you. Or maybe it was just me judging everybody who was older than me. And I just felt like I looked around and I saw Christians who, they, they didn't seem to throw themselves headfirst into, into Christ, right? They seemed to sort of attend worship on Sundays, but everything about their life still looked the same as everybody who was outside the church. So if you ask, what's different about these people? I would say church attendance And I wouldn't have been able to give you a lot more. And that was probably because I'm just not an observant person. I probably had a lot of good that I should have seen that I didn't. But I I had a couple of examples of people in my life who took me in and 
and showed me what their daily lives were like. And I saw that they lived the way that Bonhoeffer was talking about. And that I think I'm persuaded Jesus is talking about. I think people have long taken Bonhoeffer seriously just because of the way that he stood against the Nazis in Germany. You know, he believed that a church that was faithful to Christ could not adopt or tolerate in its doctrines and beliefs, uh, doctrines of racial superiority and international aggression that were represented by the Nazis. And the churches in Germany were adopting these things. They were making them part of their doctrine and their beliefs and their practices. And he was terrified of the thought of a church that becomes becomes corrupted by the state like that. And so because of that, he gave his life participating in a failed coup. And whatever your theology of resistance to the government, governing authorities, it's difficult not to admire his willingness to set his life aside in doing what he believed was right and the sort of compromise that he was unwilling to see his church make. So as a teenager, I had this believable example of a Christian man presenting me with this stark challenge. Follow Jesus with everything you have and with your whole life. Don't treat Jesus as an add-on to your life. Jesus is not an accessory. He is not simply something to go on and display your commitment somehow. He's not a marker. He's not a necklace that goes around your neck. Instead, he is Jesus. Go all in or don't go at all. And today's passage is one of those places where Jesus himself tells tells us exactly what he expects of his followers. He sets this stark example before them. And so in the time we have three things, I want us to see that Jesus is calling us to deny. He's telling us three things at least. He's telling us more, but this is one of my sermons, so it's three. Um, Following Jesus means denying autonomy. If you don't know that word, we'll talk about it. He's calling us to deny security and he's calling, a, calling for denying delay. So Jesus takes away any crutches that we may lean upon, and he calls us to lean upon following him alone. First, Jesus, following Jesus means denying our autonomy. Uh, autonomy is a fancy word for self-rule. Uh, being the ruler of your own life, deciding what your life is going to be like, being the boss of yourself, right? Uh, the captain of my own ship. Um, That's what autonomy is. And and Jesus says to anyone who would follow him, he says, no, instead of following yourself and listening to yourself, now you will be following me. Notice how how we see this in the text in in verse 18. uh, Jesus tells the disciples, it's time to go from the Jewish side of Galilee to the Gentile side of the sea. And then before they set out, this scribe comes up and he essentially says, I'll, I'll follow you wherever you go. Even if you go over to the Gentile side of the seat, I'll go there too. And, and at first glance, this is a statement of someone who's really dedicated. Doesn't he sound earnest? Doesn't he sound like he means it? Um, this is a potential disciple, someone who is expressing his desire to follow. He's He's willing. He wants to keep seeing what Jesus does. He wants to see what's next in his ministry. Um, He's here for Jesus. He wants to sit at the feet of Jesus. And let me pause here and just say at this point that we we can't see anything one way or, or, or another from this man from the perspective of an onlooker that would give us pause. There's nothing about the man that expresses hesitation necessarily. Um, There are many people 
Just like this man who look like genuine disciples, they seem interested in religious things. They even think to themselves, you know, if I'm going to, if I'm going to get anything out of this religion, I really need to throw myself into it. They, they sense there's something to their life that isn't right. They, they realize that there's something about Jesus that's different from the founders of the other world religions. They see that Jesus is, is different from Muhammad. They see that he's different from Krishna. They see that he's different from these other religious leaders. And, and, and their, but their understanding could run very deep even. Maybe they know a lot about religion. Maybe they took a comparable religions class in college. Uh, they may have been taught about the Bible when they were younger. It's not unusual for someone to decide that, that now I'm going to take this religion thing seriously. Now they're going to take this Jesus thing seriously. Uh, I'm not so old, but as a pastor, I've seen enough people like this that now it doesn't surprise me, right? Some people come to church and they seem so enthusiastic. They seem so positive the first week at church. They're like, I want to join. How can I be a member of this church? You know, week one. Um, if they say that on week one, I go, wait a minute, what's going on with you? Um, maybe after a few weeks, you know. And, and usually what happens is, look, they either disappear before they've had a chance to join and you realize they didn't really mean it, or sometimes they join and then they disappear soon after joining as a member. It's happened before. Um, there's an enthusiasm that can, that can seem like a flash in the pan. Um, Jesus illustrates this when he tells the parable of the soils. Um, We'll get to Jesus' answer to this man in the next point. But, but I will say this about how Jesus receives him. Jesus sees a need to warn him and to warn us that being a disciple means really following him and not following yourself. Like we want to do that, actually. Um, Jesus says, no, you, you, you deny your autonomy. We don't get to decide what our life is like anymore because we're following Jesus. See, before we knew Jesus, who was the boss, right? We were the boss. We were captivated by our desires, whatever our urges were, whatever our sense of the world was. There was only one person that we had to listen to, and that was us. And that's what we mean when we talk about autonomy. Well, Jesus demands that when we follow him, we really follow him, and that we really form our life around him. And so that means, for example, that we, we have our hearts molded. We have our hearts shaped around Jesus, around what Jesus says. It means making decisions and asking questions like, what does God think of this? What does Jesus think of this idea? You know, I want to go into this line of work or that line of work, but it's something that promotes evil. Or, or I want to pursue this or that relationship, but God's told me what he thinks in his word. Um, I'll submit to him instead of my own desires because I follow him now and not me. Um, this is really hard sometimes. It's easy to talk about until you have to give something that you want up. Um, I told this story before, but I don't remember if I told it here or if I told it when I was pastoring in Mississippi. Uh, but when I was in high school, there was a girl I was quite taken with, and I, I, I asked her out on a date, and she said yes. And we went to watch a very, very edgy film called Tarzan, the Disney animated Tarzan. I don't know why, I just... Feels like mentioning Tarzan diffuses everything in the room. Um, and, uh, you know, I, we just went to watch the movie and then I dropped her off at home and I told my friends and my friends said, because I had good Christian friends in my life, and they said, she's not a Christian. And I said, guys, there are four girls in my class. 
please don't take this from me. <laughs> and uh, this is what happens when you grow up in rural Kansas, okay? And uh, I knew they were right. I knew they were right. It was so easy. I crumbled so fast um, because, you know, the scripture says you shouldn't be unequally yoked together. And that would have been what happened if I had stayed with this girl. And, you know, it's one of those moments where you just feel like you get that reminder that, yeah, I did read Bonhoeffer like a few months ago. You would think I could take this seriously. Um, and, and oftentimes you will have those experiences in your life where the thing that you want conflicts and runs headlong against the very thing that Jesus says. And this, it's moments like that where you read the word and Jesus says, follow me, follow me. And you have to ask the question, who am I following? Am I following me? And is Jesus an accessory or am I actually going to follow him? And it's not always easy to answer. Um, maybe you're sort of like the scribe this morning and you think, I need to follow Jesus. I need to follow Jesus. How do I, how do I follow Jesus in a way that really matters? And part of the answer is, Jesus saying, really follow me. Put your own priorities off to the side. Forget about your own plans. Start with me. Build on me. Center around me and make your priorities my priorities. That's part of how Jesus is answering that question today. He's saying, be ready to go where I would have you go and be ready to serve where I am ready to make you useful. See, Jesus calls us to deny our autonomy. He calls us to deny ourselves. He's telling us to follow him. He never condemns the man for saying he wants to follow Jesus. What does he do, though? He says, I want you to really follow me. Now, second, Jesus calls us to deny our own sense of security. Um, This is really striking because when this, this man comes to Jesus and he says, teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go, right? Wherever you go, um, it seems like such dedication. Now Jesus' answer to him is, is, is not really, right? He says, his answer is not, you know, this is going to be a rough trip. Are you sure you're ready for the storm that you're certain to encounter on the way to the other side? He doesn't tell this man the immediate future. Um, he doesn't say, you know, when we get to the other side, you are going to meet some demons and they are going to scare the jeepers out of you. Um, you're going to see demon-possessed dudes. Jesus doesn't do that. He's not, he doesn't give this man a glimpse of the near future. That's not what he does. Instead, Jesus lifts his eyes higher and longer term. And he says in verse 20 this, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So it's almost like Jesus is saying to him, sure, uh, you can ride with me to the other side. You can go with me a while. Uh, you can see the sort of opposition we're going to face. But it's also like he sees into this man's heart and he knows the real idol that needs to be confronted. The hardest thing for this man to face. You know, Jesus pinpoints the area that this man will be, that it will be the hardest for this man to overcome. Jesus was a, a carpenter's son. He lived in Nazareth, a little town. He had a home, probably four girls in his class too. Um, he lived in Nazareth. Nazareth, he had a, a home, he had a family, and yet he left those things. He left that security, and he adopted an itinerant lifestyle. And so even when he found somewhere to sleep, it was always temporary. It was always fleeting. 
Um, He didn't have a home to call his own. He was totally dependent on the hospitality of others, and he expected his disciples to do the same. And yet Jesus seemed to be saying to this man, foxes and birds seem to always find somewhere to sleep, but following me means you might not. You might have to be out and exposed to the elements. You might need to be uncomfortable. Uh, Think about it. Look ahead a little in the text. Where will Jesus sleep that very night? Let your eyes drift down in the text and you're going to see Jesus will spend that very night sleeping in the bottom of a boat in a storm. He has nowhere to lay his head. Foxes and birds do. They have better places to sleep than this guy. And Jesus says, you need to be prepared for that kind of life. Jesus wants him to feel in his bones what he could be giving up to follow Jesus. See, he's not just yielding his life and his right to decide his own life. He's not just giving up autonomy. He's giving up the sort of things that make us feel secure. Safety and security are two idols of the 20th century. They are big idols. I wouldn't have said it five years ago, but I do think it now. I I am sure of it. And by the way, I know I'm going to step on every toe in the room, even my own toes. I fear the best sermons are the ones that step on your own toes as the preacher. Um, Westerners, Americans in particular, for some reason, we live with an obsession with safety and security. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure I could pinpoint. I'm going to try to in a moment. I'm not sure that I could pinpoint a specific cultural moment where it all happened. But it is real. The American obsession with safety and security is real. Now, as I was thinking about this, I thought, do I go here? Do I do cultural commentary uh, in the pulpit? And I'm going to try. And then afterwards, the session might say, don't do that again. Um, I'm going to point to three moments in my own life where I see this. And I'm not sure how scientifically accurate it is. You'll have to decide whether this sounds right to you. Um, So I grew up in the 80s and 90s. I was born in 1982. I I lived most of my life in an idyllic little Kansas town with four girls in my class. Can I say that enough? But when I was was a kid, I just ran around, right? I was was out all day. Um, As soon as school was over, I had to ride my bike one mile from the west east side of town to the west side of town where my house was and then after i rode my bike home i would see my mom she would make eye contact she'd see that i was still alive and then i would run outside and i would go play football in the backyard or i would ride my bike back across town to hang out with a friend sometimes i know this sounds crazy i would just knock on friends doors and just see if anybody could come and play My parents didn't text each other or call each other. They didn't connect up or anything. I just just look around till I can find somebody to play with. And um, I don't remember my parents being neurotic or floating around me or being afraid for my safety. I don't remember. I don't remember any of my friends' parents being fearful for their safety. Um, Helicopter parenting wasn't a thing. Um, Now, maybe it was in the big cities, but in Stafford, Kansas, in the 80s and 90s, it was not. Uh, then do you know what happened? There were two big things that happened that it felt like the temperature in our whole culture changed. The first was the Columbine shooting in 1999. Uh, in my own heart and in my own mind, 
and I'm speaking for this generation of people who are parenting now, it utterly shattered the illusion that school was a safe and secure place where childhood was real and indestructible. Um, And something across the whole nation, you just saw this psychological shift and metal detectors and armed guards were stationed at the schools. Kids weren't allowed to, to wear big black trench coats. Good riddance anyway. We didn't need them. Uh, something in America's psyche was, was broken, in my opinion, or at the very least, my age group. I can speak for my age group at least. It, we could never go back to those days before Columbine. The second thing, and you won't be surprised by this, I'm going to point to 9-11, when 9-11 happened, there was this sense beforehand that American indestructibility was a real thing, and it was just shattered. There was something carefree that was lost with 9-11. And suddenly, what was the matter? Well, we knew we were vulnerable. We knew that we could be hurt. We knew that, that the big oceans on both sides of us were not any security to us, right? Evil could still come and attack our shores, was this incredible strike to the hearts and minds of Americans. And now we didn't feel safe sending our kids to school. And we didn't feel safe flying to, fl- going to work. We didn't feel safe flying. And then what happened? You have armed guards, metal detectors. And now 20 years later, we're still taking off our stinking shoes in the airports. Now, I have one more. And I could cut it out. I thought about cutting it out. Then I really thought about cutting it out. And then I was like, no, I think it's real. I'm going to say it. And uh, I'm uncomfortable bringing it up, but COVID-19 happened. Um, For all the unknowns around it, I'm I'm actually not being critical of how any of us spent the the last two and a half years. I don't really judge any of you for how we lived the last two and a half years. And I mean that. Um, You know, we've all had to find our way through it. Several, Several of you work in the medical professions You saw things that many of us didn't see. Uh, Many of you have responsibilities that some of us didn't have. So uh, when I say that, I don't want to bring up bad feelings uh, because I genuinely think this church has been special because there has been a sense of agreement that we will live alongside of those who think differently than we do. I think that is part of why Evergreen has endured the last two, two years and why there has been such unity in this congregation. Um, many churches lost that somewhere along the way and the division set in and it's like they never lifted. And, and I'm thankful that Evergreen has been a place of peace when it comes to the subject of COVID-19. Amen. But I've never seen fear rise to the surface of a society like it has the last two years. This has been the cream of fear. Fear at its, at its apex and and look, I'm not even saying that's an irrational fear, right? Many people have rational concerns about what may happen to them or a vulnerable loved one or people who get sick. Um, even now, we, we're in intense prayer for our brother, Benjamin Tunison, who's been sick with, with COVID and it's been complicated by his asthma. Um, many have real cause for concern. But do you know what? I've been talking to Benjamin and he might be embarrassed to hear me say this, but he's just fearless. He's fearless. He's got it and he's fearless. And I I told him I was praying for him. And do you know what he said? He said, I'm not scared. I'm actually calm. That's a quote from him. And then he told me, he told me, have faith, brother. The Lord's got this. (laughs) 
And I like got the text and I just like started laughing out loud. I was like, you're giving me a pep talk, Benjamin, right? <laughs> He's giving me a pep talk. And, you know, I feel like brothers like this just put us all to shame and they confront us with our fears, don't they? But many healthy people with no complications that they know of put their lives on hold for years and years waiting for life to be safe again. And maybe they're even now asking the question, will, when will life be safe? When, can it, when will it be safe to go out again? Uh, when, when will it be safe for kids to be kids again? And I'm asking broader questions than just about COVID. When will it be safe? And for some, the answer is never. There, there will always be diseases. There will always be disasters. There will always be earthquakes. There will always be wars and rumors of wars until Christ returns. And do you know what Jesus says? He confronts us like, like he did this young man. Cast down the idol of safety if it interferes with following me, Jesus is saying. Foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You're afraid of school shootings. You're afraid of terrorism. You're afraid of disease. Without denying that those threats might be real, Jesus says, follow me, and I will not promise to give you security from those things. That is not my way. In fact, Jesus says to us, I was a victim myself. I was terrorized myself. How can I promise you that you won't experience suffering? How can I promise you that you won't experience insecurity when I fully walked headlong into those things? Jesus says, if you follow me, And you hold on to that one thing, whatever that one thing is. But in this man's case, he says, if you hold on to that idol of security and that idol of safety, you will find at some point on that other shore that you will have to turn back because the pressure is going to eventually be too much and the insecurity will start to get to you. And so he tells him up front that he needs to know it's coming. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Um, You've heard that old quote from the lion, the witch in the wardrobe, right, Susan? uh, uh, Susan, you want to know about Aslan and and she's talking to Mr. Beaver and uh, Mr. Beaver and she says, Aslan's a lion, right? Susan's talking. She says, Aslan's a lion. I thought he was a man. Is he safe? I should rather feel nervous about meeting a lion. And of course, Mr. Beaver says, safe. Who said anything about safe? Of course, he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And, you know, you say, I will follow you wherever you go, Jesus. Are you willing to put away the idol of safety? I don't mean to ask if you're willing to live foolishly or needlessly endanger yourself or endanger others. But to follow Jesus, would you set it aside? Would you say, I won't be safe if I have to, right? This is what the people of the world worry about. They're the ones that obsess over this. But we're under the care of the king. He's the king, I tell you. you. Will you walk with him and will you live under the kind of protection Jesus gives? Jesus denies us the right to grab hold of security for ourselves this morning. He does. That's what he's saying to this man. Third this morning, Jesus denies his followers of the right to delay. Um, I have to admit, I really struggled with this verse. I struggled with what to call this third point. I struggled with the verse itself. Um, We don't hear what happens to the scribe that Jesus was speaking to in verse 20. But then in verse 21, someone else wants to talk to Jesus. And you look at verses 21 and 22 again. 
Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said, and Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Anyone else just think it was like a harsh way for the text to stop this morning? Just stop. Let the dead bury their own dead. End of verse. So my father died in 2001, and I always thought this was very cold of Jesus. The death of your father is a huge life event. I talk about my dad all the time in the pulpit. It's because he matters. And if you've lost your father, then you know that it's a big deal. Uh, I think about my father nearly every day, and I, and I miss him. And when I hear Jesus say this, I just assume I'm missing something. I assume that there is something that I am, I'm an outsider coming into this text and I just need to learn something else because Jesus's demand is very off-putting, right? He says, leave the dead to bury their own dead. And after studying this text more deeply, I don't think I'm missing anything. I don't think I'm missing anything. Um, in a Jewish society, you buried a person quickly, right? You bury them normally within 24 hours of their death. Um, this man is not asking for a long postponement, right? He's ready to start this new life with Jesus, presumably, once the burial has taken place. He's ready. He just has to do one thing. One thing that every single person in this room would think is very reasonable. And in fact, everyone in Jesus' audience would think this is entirely reasonable. In, in Jewish society, the oldest son had the responsibility of making the arrangements and Jewish piety demanded that the burial take place, take priority even over the most essential prayers. There is nothing more important for the oldest son in the Jewish society than to get their father buried. And think about this. You read 1 Kings 19, Elijah allows Elisha the prophet to go and say goodbye to his parents. I think we need to see there is an extreme range of autonomy that Jesus is calling us to abandon. It is easy for us to know what to think when, Jesus, when someone says, Jesus, I can't follow you. I have something stupid to go do, right? <laughs> Jesus, I have something dumb to go do. I need to play a round of Fortnite first, right? Um, we all know, hey, that's bad, right? You couldn't say that to Jesus and get away with it. He's going to get smacked down by the Lord Jesus, right? That guy who says that. Jesus, I can't follow you just yet. I need to arrange my comic book collection. Uh, Jesus, I can't follow you yet. I have tickets to a Coldplay concert. Um, and that would be easy. Don't go to that show. Um, that would be so easy. Of course you drop what you're doing and you follow Jesus when the alternative is something shallow, something silly. The really hard thing in life is following Jesus when the alternative seems so reasonable and so fair. Burying your father. Burying your father. What is more reasonable than burying your father? This encounter here is a blessing to us as hard as the language is because Jesus is telling us, I take priority even over the most important things in your life that are good. He says, I, I'm number one, no exceptions. It's very easy to talk about Jesus being the center of your life when you have obvious competing desires. 
But Jesus says, I take priority over everything. Before you are an eldest son, before you are anything else, you are my follower. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. What he means is this, the spiritually dead can bury the physical, physically dead. Right? If you're spiritually dead, you will ultimately choose something over me. Maybe you'll choose something important. Maybe you'll choose something unimportant. But a spiritually dead person will find any reason not to come without delay. These two men come to Jesus. The first one promises too much. I'll follow you, Jesus. But then it, seemingly he can't. All right? The first one promises too much. The second man comes and he promises too little. He won't give up the weighty responsibilities of this life. He won't give it up. He's going to follow Jesus, and Jesus will be his accessory. Here's what Jesus does. He expects us to be so centered on him that we will give up even our greatest obligations to follow him. That's hard to contemplate, right? Nothing, nothing should stop us from following Jesus. And And the call of of Jesus is shocking. The call of Jesus is demanding. The call of Jesus is, is hard and it's harsh and it's costly. My question to you is, will you just let the weight of that call really set upon you in the way that Jesus intends it to? Because when Jesus comes, it's not just a saying. It's not just something to print on a t-shirt. When Jesus bids us come, he bids us come and die. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are half-hearted creatures, at times caught up in things that are trivial and small. But sometimes that is not the case. Sometimes we are caught up in big and weighty things. You challenge us today that nothing should stop us from following after you. Whatever it is in our life that we're holding on to, whatever it is that we refuse to give up, that we refuse to yield to you, Would you make us willing to see it? And would you make us willing to see it go? Whether it is a desire for safety, whether it's a desire for a long, comfortable life, whether it is an idol, whether it is a treasured sin, whether it is some obstacle that we know is in the way of following after you, would you purge it, O God, and make us wholehearted in our pursuit of you? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.